Uh, good morning, church. My name is AJ. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm the youth director here at Emmanuel. And um, I spoke last week. That's why I say here we are again. Um, I don't speak often, but it seems like we're doing it back to back this time. And because we're doing it back to back, I wanted to uh, speak on the central theme of God's presence again. Last week, we talked about God's presence uh, and how it helps us struggle well through life. In times of trouble, in times of need, God is there for us. His presence is exactly where we need to be. And so this week, I wanted to be a little bit more joyful. And so we'll be talking about how God's presence is where we flourish. And how that language is uh, intended. I know there's a loaded, uh, prosper is a loaded word, and so I chose the word flourish. However, it's not a bad thing for us to desire God's blessing, for us to desire to move forward in life, for this idea of prosper and flourishing in our lives. That's not a bad thing. In fact, that's what God desires for us. Now, what exactly flourishing means can be different between what we think it means and what God intends in our lives. However, flourishing as a believer is God's design for us. And so we'll be looking into uh, Psalm 63, and it's a Psalm of David. But before we get into that passage, uh, bow your heads with me as, as we pray. God, we acknowledge that we are in your presence, our King, our Savior, our Lord. You are everything to us. You are all that we need. And Father, I pray that as we um, talk about Psalm 63, as we learn more about your word, as we learn more about you and ourselves, that you open up our hearts to receiving this great message that your presence is where we flourish. And God, let us be excited for that. Let us desire that. Let us pursue that. In your mighty name, amen. So Psalm 63, uh, you could turn to it in your Bibles. And if you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on screen there for you. And so let's read it. It's not super long. Only eight verses. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Man, what a beautiful psalm. And so for us, 
in order for us to really understand what's going on here, we need to know a little bit of the context in which David, the author, wrote this psalm. And if you're unfamiliar with David, David's this important character in the Bible because when he was a young boy, God anointed him to be Israel's king. Now, there was a problem in that because David, little shepherd boy David from the boonies, being appointed king, there was already a king, King Saul. And David, in his pursuit at every opportunity to follow after God's calling, it would lead him into trouble with King Saul. And so God, uh, David would be following God's calling, whether into prosperity for him, into flourishing, but also into running for his life from King Saul's pursuit. He would be out in the wilderness. He, would be, uh, he wouldn't know who his friends were. He wouldn't know who his foes were. And so David, that's his life. He later became king when King Saul died, but it wasn't the end of his troubles. Because when this psalm was written, was during a time when David was in the wilderness again. He, he had been king for quite some time. And yet, he's on the run, not by, some, not by some mere political enemy, but by his own son, Absalom. You see, Absalom, he overthrew his father. And if you know anything about kingdoms and, and all of that political intrigue, it's not just... You, you get your father out of a job. You, you kill the guy who's king. And so Absalom, he's chasing after his father. He's sending out his soldiers after David. And David, on the run here, in the wilderness, he writes this psalm. But it's not a psalm that you would expect from someone who's in need. Because as you read through this psalm, it's not about asking for revenge. It's not about asking even for victory for escape from his enemies, for provision of food and water. What does David talk about in Psalm 63? He talks about a need that is greater than titles, a need that is greater than food and water, a need that is greater than any sense of security that we often cling to in this world. His greatest need that he's asking for is God's presence. In the midst of trouble, in the midst of his life being at risk at every turn, David is looking for God's presence. We read Psalm 63 and we find that David is more concerned with an even greater need. And so for us, when we are looking at, okay, how how can we flourish in God's presence? The very first thing that we need to do and the thing that David is so good at is identifying our greatest need. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. How amazing is, is that? To be in that headspace when you're in trouble. 
I read this and, and I am both encouraged, I admire David, but also I feel a bit ashamed. <laughs> because when I reflect in times when I'm in trouble, when I'm in need, when the bills need to be paid, you know, when, you know, when the future is uncertain, when you don't know what's coming around the corner, when the walls are closing in, I look at David's psalm and I think, wow, what a man of faith. When we're afraid and we look to our greatest need, is God the answer that we go to instinctively? Or is he the answer that we go to after having that argument in your head after a bout of convincing. I love this psalm because it's such a wonderful window into David's soul. You know, Scripture describes David as a man after God's own heart. And we see that not just in his life, but in his inner thoughts as he's writing this psalm. He knows his greatest need, but the question is, do we? What is our greatest need? You know, my, if you've ever been to our place, you might not have. We're, we're still fairly new into our, our place here in Abbotsford. But if you go to our place, you'll notice that there are plants everywhere, right? Different kinds of plants and different kinds of pots. And it's because my, my wife, Faith, she loves taking care of plants. If you were to ask me, how a plant can flourish, I would look at you like a deer in headlights. I would have no idea. I would point at a glass of water and tell you that's all that they need. But my wife, she's so good at it because she knows that each and every plant needs something different, needs something particular. They don't all operate the same way. And so for us, when we are pursuing the the sense of flourishing when we want to flourish we need to know what that greatest need in us is it's easy to point at a glass of water and say that's all that we need but what we need to do is to identify and really look into our hearts and say god's presence is where we flourish The prerequisite to flourishing is having our needs met. And that's why it's so important to understand this. I remember in college or in high school, I was introduced to what's called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this is fairly common, fairly popular because it resonates with so many people. See, Abraham Maslow, he wanted to study and he wanted to map out human behaviors. What drives us? What pushes us to action? And he noticed that oftentimes humans move based off of their needs. And so after quite a long time of studying, he created this pyramid. And you notice there what that pyramid is trying to tell us is that before we can think about the higher levels of our needs, we need our bottom levels figured out first. 
So in his pyramid, before you can think about love and belonging, you need your physiological needs met. Before you can think about family and love and friendship, you need to have your food, your shelter, um, your water secured, right? And the reason why I bring this up is because when you look out into the world, everyone is pursuing their lives, their needs, just like this pyramid. They want that self-actualization. They, they, think of, they think that what their greatest need is in order for them to flourish is to maximize each and every level of this pyramid. And yet, when I look at David, when I look at the history of the church, when I look at friends and family who love God with all of their hearts, I look at this pyramid and I'm like, there's something missing in Maslow's assessment. Yes, there's, there's something to be said about our needs being met and, and, and there seeming to be a hierarchy, but when I look at believers who really pursue God's presence, something is missing. When I look at David, how when the walls are closing in on him, instead of looking for a way out, he goes on his knees and seeks God's presence. When I think about the missionaries, the first missionaries to Hawaii, how they gave up everything. They sold all their properties, all their possessions. They got on a boat pursue, going into this island of Hawaii where they were told you will be killed, you will be, no one will listen to the message of the gospel. When I think about all the people in church history, there's something missing here. Because when you have God as your greatest need, when you realize that, when you are pursuing that, God empowers us to be able to turn aside all of those levels, all of those needs that we see on that pyramid. He empowers us to be free from our earthly needs, from the shackles of what we think and what the world tells us we need to actually flourish and prosper. When we identify that God is our greatest need, it frees us. I look at this guy, his name is Francis of Assisi, and he lived very long time ago, 800 years ago, around the 12th century. And he came from a family that was wealthy, right? And, and he had everything that he ever needed, but as he was studying the scriptures, he felt so convicted to leave all of it behind and to pursue God that he abandoned all of his titles, he abandoned all of his possessions, even the clothes on his back, okay? He was talking to his father about this, and, and on the spot, he just stripped down, and he said, I don't need any of this. I want Jesus. And he goes to this abandoned building just on the outskirts of town to study God's word, 
And you look at that kind of decision and you're like, these people are crazy. And I mention this story not as a recommendation for us, you know, to give up everything and, and go fi- uh, find someplace secluded and, and to just read God's word. But as evidence that when you have God's presence in your life, so very little else matters. So very little else matters. That when you realize When God says, taste and see, and you've tasted and you've seen the beauty of the Lord and being in his presence, what that can do for you, you can abandon all things in pursuit of him. That's the power that Jesus has to offer. That's the power that God's presence brings. People like Francis, people like those missionaries to Hawaii, missionaries everywhere, they would completely baffle Abraham Maslow. People who love God and pursue God's presence earnestly, as David describes, would all throw Maslow in for a loop because God's transforming power is beyond the scope of psychological study. It's miraculous. It's supernatural. It's a flourishing that defies all earthly wisdom. And so we look at this and, and, and we identify, okay, so what if God is our greatest need? I'll, I'll chase after that. I'll pursue it. What comes next? And the answer is that flourishing is two different things. Reading on from verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift my hands up. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you uh, on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Once we're able to pursue God, once we're able to identify our greatest need, what follows is this state of flourishing in God's presence. And flourishing is two things. It's satisfaction and it's blessing. Satisfaction for the soul, as we read in that psalm, is a powerful thing. He talks about it like the perfect meal, right? Fat and rich food. Satisfaction. It's that feeling you get after you finish a project, that feeling you get when you ace your exam, when you've accomplished something. That spiritual equivalent is that when you see God's work in your life, you feel content, you feel satisfied, you feel at peace, and you feel fulfilled. David 
Even though he's being chased after by soldiers sent from, by his son, he can sleep well at night, not worrying about all of these other things, but focusing on God because he knows that whatever external things happen, when God's presence is there, he has everything that he'll need. The whole point of understanding our greatest need is so that we can flourish in the way that God has designed. Christian flourishing isn't about having all of our Maslow's needs met and then maximized. Christian flourishing is experiencing the satisfying peace and fulfillment of being in God's presence, of watching in awe all that God is doing and all that he is going to do not being enslaved by the needs of the flesh or the chains of the world. But when we say flourishing is two things, it's not just the feeling of being satisfied. It's not just the feeling that you don't need to look for anything else to be in joy and to be content. It is also, as David describes in verse 4, to bless God. You see, as, as God's Spirit fills you up, we pour out. In church, we don't come here just to feel better about ourselves, but we come here to be emboldened to doing what God has commanded. You may be wondering, well, God has everything he ever wants. God, has, uh, God doesn't need our blessing. And yet, he desires it. And we can offer it through our obedience, through, our glad, through a glad heart. We bless others because God fills us up, allowing us to pour out. We bless God with our worship. We bless God when we share Jesus' message of mercy, forgiveness, and transformation. We bless God when we expand his kingdom on earth. We exist for that reason. When you look into the end of Matthew, Jesus leaves us off after encouraging us that he'll be with us to the end of age he leaves us off with commandments to make disciples of all nations, to teach and to baptize. This is why the Christian life is far from dull. It's exciting. Because the gospel doesn't end with this book. It continues with our own testimony. It's thrilling to see people come to Jesus. It's exciting when I see people getting baptized and committing their lives to him. One thing just during this pandemic that I've been strangely jealous over is how activated people are for, for activism, how energized and how, how these social issues can mobilize so many people. I get jealous because I look at that and I'm like, this is how the church should be. Not in, not in creating social reform, 
but in transforming lives for Jesus. This is how the church should be. We should be busting out of the seams, bursting out of the seams. Because of what God has given us, we want to share with others. This movement of Jesus has been the longest running one here on earth. And it should be the strongest one as well. The church should be the one activated towards the mission of Jesus. We have our greatest needs fulfilled. We have Jesus' presence and we have his power. And so what's holding us back? In the way that God had anointed David when he was a boy, he used that anointing, or even despite of it, he pursued God every step of his life. He wasn't the perfect king. He wasn't the perfect believer. But the irony of David is that when he is at his worst, he is actually at his best. And that he moves for God. That he lives for, for God. What's holding us back? What's keeping us from using God's power here on earth. I see God's power and presence. I saw it back at kids camp when 17 of our youth volunteered to help lead and teach and share Jesus to 50 kids. I saw God's power and his presence when we were downstairs a couple of weeks ago and we were renovating the youth room, not so that the youth room could be better for the youth, but so that it could be inviting for everybody, so that it could be a space that the whole church can, uh, can go into and enjoy. I feel the flourishing of Emmanuel when earlier this week Hannah was telling us at the staff meeting that there are people who are stepping up and taking leadership in the church. I see that and I feel that and I get excited, I get, I get radical and it's because I'm excited for what God can accomplish through us when we love and pursue him. But I'm also happy to announce that next year we'll be sending a team of youth to Guatemala to serve God, to continue to pursue him. And it's something that Emmanuel has done before. And I've seen the power of God's work through that. I want to see it again. I want to see the people of our church, myself included, go and take risks. Go and stick our necks out there. Because no matter what happens to us, our greatest needs are met. We are in the presence of God. We are empowered by his spirit. We don't need social standing. This is why when Jesus says, those who, uh, who take up their cross and follow me, those can be my disciples. What he was implying is that when you take up the cross, you are ready to be rejected by society. You are ready to suffer. You are ready to lose things in pursuit of him. And so to take that step of risk 
only to find that in God's presence do we experience flourishing like nothing else the world can offer. Will we see how God's kingdom can move in our communities, in our own lives, among our families, our friends? Pursue God's presence. Flourish in him. And let's see what God can do. Let us pray. God, we thank you. We thank you because you loved us first. We thank you because you invite us into your presence. You tell us, taste and see. And when we do that, God, you're so amazing. You allow us to partake in your glory. You allow us to experience a love that is better than life. Father, I pray. Help us identify you as our greatest need. Open our eyes, open our hearts. And then after we feel that satisfaction in you, empower us to go out and expand your kingdom here on earth. God, we thank you because you make us bulletproof in that way. You give us all that we need. And we thank you because life is easier with you. So much simpler, so much more beautiful, so much more exciting. Help us take that step. In your mighty name, amen.